You understand, Captain, that this mission does not exist, nor will it ever exist. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. We're streaming out live on the alternate current radio network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And also after the show, uh, we'll have a podcast uploaded to iTunes. Uh, If you're listening on that platform, thank you again for your subscriptions and your support uh, for this show. We really appreciate our crowd and our people up there at iTunes. Uh, Now, our next guest uh, for this special New Year's Day live broadcast, uh, we've we've got somebody very special, and he's also in, he's doing his uh, his work uh, as we speak, and he is out in a field somewhere in Britain. He'll tell us a little bit about that. But uh, his name is Ian R. Crane, uh, and he's also the founder of the Alternative View uh, conference series, and also the host of a very successful online uh, TV show called Humanity versus Insanity. Uh, as well as being a, a public speaker of note and a top-notch researcher. His name is Ian R. Crane, and he's joining us on the live link right now somewhere in a field in Britain. Hello, Ian. Good afternoon, uh, Patrick. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well. Um, uh, whereabouts are you? Are you, in, uh, are, are, you, are you in England, Scotland, or Wales? No, no, I am in the north of England. I'm in North Yorkshire. Uh, which is over on the eastern side of the uh, the country, and um, yeah, basically we are occupying a field um, about a mile and a half outside the village of Kirby Mispeton, which is uh, the location where Third Energy uh, have permission to frack um, an existing well here. Now, for for view of listeners in the U.S., um, maybe fracking isn't a big issue because over you know, one million uh, unconventional gas and oil wells have been drilled in the U.S. over the last two decades. Um, but unfortunately, what most people in the U.S. are not aware of is the phenomenal level of contamination that this industry has caused um, and in, in the states where it has uh, established a foothold. Contamination of the water, the soil, the air, um, and plus, it's actually turned Oklahoma into the earthquake capital of the U.S. So a little over you know, a decade ago, not even, uh, Oklahoma was considered to be uh, seismically stable. But due to the massive volumes of frack waste that have been pumped down waste disposal wells, uh, which have effectively caused the geology to fracture unintentionally, and uh, this is what has led to Oklahoma effectively now taking over from California as the earthquake uh, capital in the U.S. But in the in the U.K., we've only ever had one well drilled and, and fracked, one unconventional well. And, and that led to a very minor seismic event, uh, just, well, uh, two minor seismic events, 1.5 and 2.3 on the Richter scale. But uh, after that, uh, a moratorium, a temporary ban was put in place, a ban that was lifted at the end of 2012. And so we have uh, just completed the fifth year in the UK totally frack-free. But uh, as we enter the prospective sixth year, the, the government and the industry is uh, is certainly going to try and um, uh, get another frack under their belt, but uh, suffice to say that there's a considerable and increasing number of us that have every intention of um, trying to ensure that that's not the case. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get on to our, our topic of conversation this week, but on the fracking issue, Ian, since you brought it up, and since you're in, uh, in, in the middle of a field uh, somewhere in North Yorkshire, um, I was talking to someone fairly high up, a high-ranking person in the energy uh, industry here in the United States over the holidays, and basically, I told them they asked me what I thought of fracking. I basically said it was a Ponzi scheme. Um, would you agree with that assessment uh, in terms of describing fracking? Oh, without any shadow of doubt. Um, 
And, and I mean, the industry has to keep drilling, keep fracking, you know, to be able to get the uh, investment to pay off their uh, their debts. Um, I mean, it's a massive bubble. And uh, the companies that are engaged in the fracking, and I mean, let me just be very clear, I'm differentiating between the conventional hydrocarbon industry and the unconventional, i.e. this is extracting hydrocarbons from tight geology. So this, this requires the process of high-volume, high-pressure hydraulic fracturing as opposed to uh, you know, the, the more traditional and conventional stuff. Um, and, the, and the reality is that these companies are uh, filing for Chapter 11. They're being you know, propped up by... Uh, um, by some of the you know the larger companies, but this, this bubble is going to burst. And what's what's interesting for me is that uh, Trump has alluded to the um, the as I say objective of making the U.S. completely energy independent, um, which is actually going to be through further exploitation of unconventional geology. So further. Uh, contamination of the water, further uh, increase in um, in earthquakes, and uh, you know, look at the some of the side effects, if you like, of this. You look at what happened in Aliso Canyon uh, a year ago, where for three months they had uh, massive volumes of methane just uh, leaking leaching into the atmosphere because uh, there's so much gas being produced in the U.S. that there isn't actually customers for it. So it's being pumped into a storage facility in uh, northwestern L.A., uh, just uh, outside the um, subdivision of Porter Ranch. And, and this led to 7,000 families being evacuated for um, you know, three to four months uh, a year ago. And you know, it's just swept under the carpet. And the reality is that many of those people, because the leak is allegedly plugged, Many of those people are going back, or have gone back, of course, to their residence, but they're getting sick because the, the gases that leached, leached into their houses, you know, soaked into the curtains, the carpets, and all the soft furnishings around the house. Many people didn't have the money to pay for their house to be completely uh, you know, dry clean. And uh, then they find that their pet gets sick first because obviously their noses are closest to the, to the ground. And then the kids get sick. Uh, so these are the kind of legacies that this industry leaves in its wake. But, of course, the U.S., even more so than the U.K., is driven by a corporatist agenda. And Trump, whilst I will readily acknowledge that I, I certainly am very happy that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton is not in power, because I think the prognosis there is very clear, and we would have been well on our way to World War Three by now. But, uh, you know, with Trump, obviously, the jury's still out, but... Uh, you know, Trump in some cases has done some really good research. I mean, he's certainly a skeptic when it comes to vaccines. He's a skeptic when it comes to um, genetic modified foods. But for whatever reason, he's just not looking at the magnitude of the devastation that is caused by the unconventional gas industry. And let's be clear, the only reason that the unconventional gas industry has a free reign in the U.S. is thanks to the Halliburton loophole which is that marvellous piece of legislation that um, Dick Cheney pushed through uh, the Senate uh, back in 2005, which effectively gives the unconventional, well, actually gives the hydrocarbon industry, the entire hydrocarbon industry, the equivalent of diplomatic immunity when it comes to having to acknowledge or report any contamination of water, soil, or air. So the U.S. is uh, slowly becoming increasingly contaminated. I mean, obviously, one or two states, like uh, New York, for example, have seen the light and, and banned it, but they're not out of the woods because the US, uh, New York State gets a lot of its uh, water supply from Pennsylvania, which has uh, effectively had the bejesus fracked out of it. So this is, you know, the evidence. The physical evidence is there for all who are appropriately uh, motivated to take a look at this, those who have the curiosity to do their own research, will very quickly come to the realization that this is an industry that has no place anywhere, um, and certainly not the U.S., but even less so in a small, densely populated country like the U.K. So I and uh, a few others um, are uh, camped out on the field here, 
Uh, we, we arrived almost two weeks ago. Immediately, the High Court in London overruled the, or, or ruled in the judicial review that the Third Energy um, uh, should be granted permission to undertake this frack. And uh, we are going to do everything we possibly can to ensure that the UK continues to remain frack-free, because otherwise we will. Uh, because it's happened everywhere else where this industry has got a foothold, we will end up with contaminated water, soil and air. And, uh, you know, within two decades, just like southern Queensland right now, within two decades, uh, the large tracts of the UK may become effectively uninhabitable. Yeah, yeah. Now, over in America, so... We'll stay on. We'll stay on this subject because actually, this this dovetails into uh, our, our looking ahead at 2017. So, if, if someone like Donald Trump, who's surrounded by oil and gas guys, basically, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it might have been Rex Tillerson who had a, a a mansion in Pennsylvania, and he himself didn't want the fracking well uh, near his own multi million dollar estate. Is that the same guy? That's exactly the same guy. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, so he doesn't even believe it's safe, uh, and he's the, he's Trump's Secretary of State, former CEO of Exxon Mobil uh, International. But so so looking at with with all the the fracking crowd behind Trump, ready to get you know get more drill bits in. Um, if you look at this, Ian, the success of the protest at the Dakota Access Pipeline, and then the combination of that with. Uh, big energy uh, hydrocarbon guys behind Trump, could this be a potential awakening moment for the, what, what I would call, Ian, the real environmental movement, not the climate change uh, movement, not the Al Gore uh, quasi-religion, but the actual real environmental movement that wants to protect real things today in this real world we live in now, um, in, instead of projecting forward... Uh, about something that might happen in 500 years' time based on computer modeling. Uh, fracking is a real issue affecting us today. Could the D Dakota Access Pipeline success spread across America? Oh, without any shadow of doubt. And uh, I think that there, there have been a number of uh, instances, uh, you know, around the, around the globe over the last couple of years. And we had Bentley in Australia, um, uh, where... Uh, literally thousands of people descended on Bentley in northern uh, New South Wales uh, to prevent MacGasco from getting onto the uh, location which they intended to drill and frack. We had a similar situation in Belcoo in County Fermanagh in the Northern Ireland where uh, when the uh, company there, Tamron, wanted to access the, an existing uh, well site, uh, 140 agricultural vehicles uh, manifested in the road and prevented the company from getting onto the well site. And the Irish government, the Northern Irish Assembly, um, effectively removed um, Tamron's license on the basis that they hadn't, clearly hadn't, fulfilled one of their uh, contractual requirements, which was to gain social license, i.e. the support of the local community. And, and you know, what's recently occurred at Standing Rock, and of course that's, that's not a, a, a win of a war, it's uh, certainly a very, very significant battle that has uh, been won, but you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, the industry is not going to just roll over, it's going to look at alternative strategies, uh, but hopefully what, it, what Standing Rock has done is it, it's bought... Uh, multiple different environmental groups together. It's brought together people who maybe in some cases have never participated in anything like this in their lives, but are starting to realize that you know, things are getting out of control. And the, the corporations are basically almost at liberty to behave in whatever they, way they want to behave uh, because they've got all the politicians that they need very much in their pockets and sadly that's a model that is now starting to you know creep over to uh, to europe and the and the uk where legislation is effectively set by uh, bureaucrats but the bureaucrats get their direction from the lobbyists so i think we're in for a, you know, a very very interesting year i mean it does dovetail in i think to a lot of things that you're talking about tonight and i think 2017 in many respects is going to be seminal in 2016, it certainly didn't go the way the establishment intended to. 
Um, and in fact, I mean, just a little statistic that, uh, that from the um, betting shops, the bookmakers in the UK, if somebody had put £10, just £10 on a treble bet, the first one being that Leicester City uh, won the Premiership. Now, that won't mean anything to your American listeners, but that's like a real minnow club, you know, winning uh, what is regarded as one of the most competitive um, soccer leagues on the planet. And they won, they won that uh, last year. Brexit, their vote going in, in uh, favour of Brexit, and then Trump getting elected. Anybody putting £10 would have walked away um, on uh, November uh, the 8th when, oh, or 9th when Trump was appointed the, uh, the winner of the election. They would have walked away with £45 million. Pounds. Wow. So you know, that's, that's indicative of you know, the, the bookies' expectations. And, of course, those expectations are driven by effectively the establishment narrative because the perception is that, you know, whatever the establishment narrative, they've got control of the media and therefore, you know, they can, they can push their agenda through. And basically it didn't go their way at all. That's not to say that they're not going to, you know, come back um, fighting and one always has to be concerned about, you know, the cornered, the rabid cornered uh, animal who sees no other way out than to come on the attack. So I think, you know, I heard you say earlier, or somebody said earlier, um, you know, to expect the unexpected in 2017. Well, we got the unexpected in 2016, and I certainly think, you know, we're going to get more of the unexpected, although, of course, as time goes on, it won't be the unexpected, it'll be the expected. And, and this is, I think, indicative of the fact that, obviously, people are turning away from the mainstream media in their droves, which is why they're panicking and trying to find... Uh, ways to shut down the alternative media, which ain't going to happen, because what they what they don't seem to be able to comprehend is that the alternative media um, consists of a lot of very very smart young people who have the creativity to come up with an alternative, whatever blocks the establishment tries to put in their way. But I mean, just to look at the statistics in the UK, Patrick, would you believe that just in the last six years? The readership, uh, based on the print runs, the print runs of national newspapers in the UK has reduced by 30% in just six years. Mm. That's huge. I mean, it is it's huge. Um, I mean, the, the Guardian, you know, which is uh, the um, left wing, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of centre-left, um, environmentally-focused, um, national newspaper, and they now have a donate button on their website. Huh. Yeah. So you know, maybe trying to uh, trying to take uh, take their lead from the alternative media. But the beauty of the alternative media, of course, is that um, you know it, it's not contained within the control of six families, for example, like the U.S. media. You know, it, it's some the alternative media embraces those people who post information or post uh, observation, comment, they may only have a few readers. And then you've got others probably at the other extreme, say like, I don't know, Alex Jones or whatever, who are, whose li uh, listeners run into the millions. But the difference is that the people who are listening to alternative media or reading the alternative media, they don't just get their information from one source. You know, they, these are the people who are going to check out multiple sources and they're going to look for corroboration. They're not just going to, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but they're not just going to regurgitate what they've read or heard from one outlet, which is the way the mainstream works. The mainstream just wants you to watch one channel and it, or two channels maybe. And uh, basically then from what information or um, what narrative is pumped out from those one or two sources, that becomes your worldview. But as people turn away from the mainstream, they move to the alternative, they, they start to develop or you know, rediscover perhaps their own powers of discretion and discernment. You know, and I heard, I think it was you or Andy Thomas who said that, you know, the whole thing about fake news is about trying to, um, you know, remove people's personal sovereignty in terms of uh, information. Well, I think the mainstream had pretty much done that period. And it's mm -hmm. in the last six, seven years 
that people have rediscovered. They, they, they've suddenly realized that actually they don't have to take whatever narrative is pumped out by a national or a politically controlled um, outlet. They do have the capacity to take a look at multiple sources, and they do have the capacity to then uh, discern um, the, the information they're reading before they actually come to their worldview. And, and what's interesting, Patrick, is I'm finding, you know, when I talk to people, more and more people, uh, particularly obviously those who get their information from the alternative media, they're more open to discussion, they're more open to debate because they are more widely read. And so, you know, whereas people who still get their info or develop their worldview from the mainstream, you know, it's very superficial. And these people get defensive very, very quickly because there's actually no substance to their, their worldview. It's very shallow, you know, because effectively they're just regurgitating the, um, the, the sound bites that have been pumped out by, you know, the likes of the BBC. But when the people who are spending the time to take a look at multiple sources, then by definition, you know, they're building, they're building up a backstory. They're building up the, um, you know, the substance that actually enables them to explain and articulate why it is they hold a particular worldview. And I think this is what scares the crap out of the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, when I, when I first back in the old days, I used to go to my news agent in Fulham Broadway, uh, in Southwest London, just, I'm talking about 20 years ago. And, uh, every, every Sunday, I usually have Sunday off from work and I would buy the Sunday times. I'd buy the observer. I'd buy, uh, the news of the world, or I think the news of the world on Sunday, I'd buy the mail on Sunday and uh, maybe one or two other uh, newspapers, and I'd sit there, probably spend the whole day. I'd read about seven, seven newspapers or something like that, and just just scour through them. And that was kind of pre-internet. And then when the internet comes, now my list, my bookmark list of news sites. I really have my top thirty sites, which I I, I look at pretty much on a day-to-day basis. Then I have, and they're alternative, uh, independent type sites, and they have about sort of uh, five or six mainstream. Uh, sites which I subscribe to just to see what the establishment are are saying because that's equally important for me to find out what the party line is uh, coming out of uh, Washington or London on any given issue. Uh, so that that's a total of fifty different news sources which I'm keeping my eye on on a on a daily basis. And I think I'm pretty typical. I think a lot of people out there, readers, they're they're looking at about the same, like up up to fifty different um, news sources um, throughout you know the week. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's our reality in, uh, you know, in the 21st century, but yet there's just a, a large part, part, part of the population is still, uh, not doing that. They're still kind of really trusting, uh, maybe one or two or three sources, the BBC, uh, and a few others, uh, maybe the, the, the times or the guardian or God forbid the independent, which is basically a blog. Now, I think they got rid of their newspaper. They're just a blog. I, I ran into an independent columnist uh, not long ago, and I, I made the subtle joke to him. I said, so so you're a blogger now, snicker, snicker, because they used to make fun of us because we don't write for print, you know. But <laughs> so, but that that's the reality of the 21st century, Ian. And uh, so the genie's out of the bottle, the information's out, and a lot of the people who are so-called alternative people are better informed than uh, the mainstream establishment are on issues that are they're dealing with. Absolutely. I mean, no question. Um, you know, I mean, just today, you know, here we are in the in the wilds of uh, North Yorkshire, and you know, the level of support from the local community has been absolutely staggering. And you know, this is a conservative community with both a small and a big C, and this community have tried everything. They've gone through every possible process to try and prevent this company from being permitted to frack in this location. And uh, so all they're left with now, obviously, is, is us, basically. But anyway, they come to support us. And obviously, we, we invite them in. We have a reception area at the front of the field. We have a nice fire going there. And we sit around and we talk to them. And obviously, the conversation starts with the fracking. But then, you know, these people, they initiate the expansion of discussion. And the discussion can go in any one of a, uh, a number of directions. 
But the common denominator is that these are people who a decade ago had probably never, maybe not even a decade, they had never had cause to question the establishment. You know, they, they still held on to the, the, the belief that, you know, well, my government always, it might not always uh, do what I wanted to do, but, you know, it has my best interests at heart. But people are now beginning to realize that that is not the case. And so in many ways, this whole fracking issue is actually a gift because what it's done is it's created a portal for people who are effectively middle England, not middle class, but middle England. You know, they're the average Joe. Um, you know, they, they, uh, they've got a family, they've got two kids, and, you know, they both probably go out to work um, and never really had calls or, uh, or probably even the time you know, to look at some of the issues on a deeper level. But now they are. They're finding the time. And, you know, obviously not everybody comes at stuff at the same speed. But, you know, a couple of young guys today, both in their um, uh, mid-30s or so, uh, they had kids in the car. And, you know, within 30 minutes, we only talk about fracking. I mean, that's what we're here for. So, you know, unless somebody actually initiates a discussion on another subject, we keep it to the fracking. But these guys... They really, I mean, they had really got a good grasp. I mean, we, in, in the time, you know, we, did, we discussed uh, the vaccination agenda, the genetic uh, modified food agenda, the suppression of natural remedies agenda, uh, geoengineering, yeah, uh, fractional reserve banking, the legal fraud. I mean, you know, these are just random people who live in, you know, this uh, fairly remote part of the country. And, you know, a decade ago, it would have been unthinkable that, uh, you know, you would just have that kind of random conversation. So the level of awareness um, and the level of um, insight into the way in which the ruling parasites have effectively maintained control is spreading. And, of course, you know, it's like any game. You've got to really know the rules before you can start to, you know, become a, a serious player. And, you know, I think what concerns the establishment is more and more people are starting to understand the rules. And, you know, this brings us back a bit to where we were with the hydrocarbon agenda and the look at um, the uh, issues for 2017. And let's not forget that one of the primary um, goals of the U.S. is to maintain the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. And the reason they do that is obviously because uh, uh, that means that um, countries, particularly OPEC countries, are committed to trading hydrocarbons in U.S. dollars. And, of course, you know, one of the benefits of that is not only has the U.S. then got more dollars in circulation and, you know, where is the best place to spend those dollars? Well, in the U.S., sadly, what is that money being spent on? Well, right now it's primarily being spent on uh, armaments. Mm -hmm. And, it, and uh, but you know, the the U.S. wants to maintain the uh, global reserve currency, but as the uh, increase in trade in arms becomes a byproduct of that, what the U.S. is desperate for now is a war. Now, ha had Hillary Clinton obviously got into office, then I think she would have taken that as a mandate from the American people to initiate World War III because she never made any secret of the fact that if she got elected, she would bomb Iran. And, and uh, obviously we know what that would have, uh, have led to. But, of course, what it would have done was it would have created a phenomenal demand for, for armaments, and just like the U.S. was during the Iran-Iraq War of 82 to 88. You know, they don't care who, uh, who's buying as long as they've... Um, of the money, and of course uh, the U.S. was supplying both um, Iran and Iraq for six years. In fact, one of the reasons the war ended in '88 was because both sides suddenly realised that they were being played by the uh, the great imperialists of, of the U.S. So the issue here is, you know, obviously Trump is uh, going to get a lot of pressure from his uh, global corporatist colleagues. And, the, uh, you know, one of the problems of uh, Trump's agenda of making the U.S. self-sufficient in hydrocarbons is that if it's not buying hydrocarbons from the Middle East, 
then those countries may not have the motivation to retain the US dollar as the global reserve currency. And, you know, a little bit of history that very few people are aware of is that when Nixon removed the US from the gold standard on August the 15th, 1973, that was part of a longer term strategy to introduce the um, US dollar as the reserve currency by removing it from the gold standard and it's effectively becoming a total fiat currency. So two years later, coincidentally, we have the second uh, Middle East crisis um, where uh, obviously the OPEC countries feign their disgust at America's overt support for Israel. So Henry Kissinger um, and uh, James A. Baker III uh, pay a visit to Sheikh Jamani uh, at the Davos Economic Forum, so nice bit of neutral ground there, and they have a chat with Jamani, uh, and they said, look, um, you know, we've got a proposition for you. Uh, we would like you to retaliate against the U.S. Uh, and its overt support of Israel, and uh, what we would like you to do is we would like you to increase the price of oil by 400%. Now, initially, Yamani couldn't believe what he was hearing. So he got them to run it past him again. And then he said, what's the catch? Uh, because he knew that, obviously, this was just too good to be true. Uh, and the catch was that the uh, OPEC countries then accepted or demanded that the U.S. dollar became the reserve currency and all oil trades were in U.S. dollars. Now, to get that agreement, they had to speak to the Shah of Iran, who was also a very uh, prominent member of OPEC at the time. And uh, so when uh, Yamani, when Sheikh Yamani spoke to the Shah, and he, he left out a bit of the story about uh, Kissinger and um, James A. Baker, so he just presented it to uh, the, the Shah of Iran as, uh, you know, look, um, I think it might be an idea. We take an opportunity to get some retaliation against the uh, the U.S. for their support of Israel. Um, so how about we uh, increase the price of oil by 400%? Well, the Shah's response was, well, you know, nice idea, but the Americans will never agree to it. So that was when Yamani had to tell the Shah that actually it was Kissinger and Baker that had uh, made the proposition. And then, of course, he had to explain that... Um, the agreement was that, uh, you know, the uh, reserve currency uh, became the U.S. dollar. And, and they bought into it. They absolutely bought into it. And so this is how um, the U.S. dollar became the global reserve currency. And, of course, from that point in 73, the countries like um, Saudi and Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates and um, uh, Iraq and, indeed, uh, Iran – uh, they were, you know, spending that money on U.S. produced products. Obviously, not all armaments. But uh, what it gave was a, a massive boost to the U.S. economy in 73. But that bubble has long burst. And consequently, I mean, the U.S. manufacturing, just like U.K. manufacturing, is a shadow of what it was. You know, the, the middle classes in both the U.S. and the U.K. are disappearing you know, at a phenomenal rate of knots. And the U.S., uh, unfortunately, the only way in which the global corporatists can see to redress this in the short term is to establish a major global conflict. And I think that this is where the alternative media um, is going to play a massive part because, you know, if we go back to Kissinger, uh, sorry, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's uh, book, The Grand Chessboard, which he wrote in 1997, four years before 9-11. But, you know, an observation that he made in The Grand Chessboard, and he was almost plagiarized word for word in the PNAC document, Project for New American Century, when that was published in December 2000, he said that the American public, you know, don't have the, the stomach for another conflict, because although we had the success of the first Gulf War in 91, they were still really licking their wounds from uh, the, uh, you know, the Vietnam experience. So he made the observation, he said, that you know, the American public are not going to support this unless we get a catastrophic and catalytic event, you know, like a, new, like a Pearl Harbor. And, uh, of course, uh, four years later, that's exactly what was contrived 
to give the U.S. the opportunity to go and, and start the process of, uh, uh, of global hegemony. So, you know, the bottom line is the globalists want a world war, and I think the only way in which this stops is if the masses, or at least a significant percentage of the masses, actually understand that this is contrived. And, and another part of uh, the reason for them wanting um, a massive war is because they're, they're starting to realize that they've got too many useless eaters. Mm. Yeah, population reduction, right? <laughs> well, exactly. You know, and, and with the magnitude of automation that's occurring, you know, uh, the U.S. and, and Europe, uh, I mean, they, they just don't have enough uh, jobs for the... Um, uh, the, the population, and that, that's why we're seeing, you know, increasingly uh, aggressive attitudes taken towards those who, for whatever reason, elect, or in some cases they don't elect, they just find themselves in positions where they're not able to contribute to the corporatist agenda. Um, so, you know, for example, we in the UK, it is accepted and acknowledged that we have had well over uh, 2,000, 2,500 deaths in the last few years, uh, some of those were suicides, as a direct result of uh, benefits being sanctioned or, or withdrawn. And the, the benefits agency in the UK, the Department of Work and Pensions, the people who are employed by this agency are actually incentivized to find ways to remove benefits from people. And in some cases, I mean, these are people that are long-term sick, you know, the doctors, the medical profession have deemed that they're unable to work. And the attitude of, of those who are responsible for determining their benefits entitlement is, well, you know, sorry, um, basically, that's your problem. And if you die, you die. And so what we are losing, I think, you know, what we are slowly losing, but and that we have to find a way to recover this, is we are losing social conscience. You know, and once a country loses social conscience, you've got a real problem, a, a very real problem, because, you know, we're basically back to the days of, well, the last days of Rome. Maybe that's yeah, where we're at. Because any, anything goes at that point, doesn't it? When, uh, when, you, when you take that plug out of the uh, social tub, uh, a vortex forms. And uh, everything goes down the drain at that point. Uh, airs, graces, uh, you know, basic uh, compassion for your fellow human. Uh, you get into it's an age of barbarianism or barbarism uh, is, I think, what you're alluding to, Ian. And uh, we see it in the rhetoric. And I, I think this was uh, uh, officially launched by uh, people like Ian Duncan Smith and this kind of this rhetoric, this kind of um, neo-Thatcherite. Uh, sort of rhetoric that's uh, become all too pervasive uh, in the halls of power in the last few years, especially under this uh, under this government. But I, I, I'm not I'm, I don't think it's uh, confined to even the Tories in uh, in Britain. I think this is a general mindset of uh, an elite mindset, and I think it's pervasive uh, across all countries and uh, and especially in the West. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, Ian. And, you know, looking forward to 2017, I mean, you talked, you brought up something really important, okay? You said, you know, Trump talks about energy independence, or the Trump people talk about it. But it's, you, you brought up the, the realistic position on that as to why the U.S. purchases uh, Saudi uh, product oil in order to have skin in the game. And I think the same thing uh, goes with China. Um, here, here's, you know, back in 1973, after Richard Nixon opened relations with China, guess who flew over to meet with the Chinese behind closed doors was Mr. Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller. And basically, they, they made a deal right then and there uh, that the U.S. would supply industrial capital and know-how to China. And in return, uh, Kissinger and Rockefeller corporations... Uh, would gain a mon monopolistic advantage of the low-cost labor production uh, that could outcompete any and all U.S. domestic industries. Uh, that was the process of offshoring uh, industries to China, which the uh, the U.K. and Europe have done as well, uh, for the most part, except for maybe Germany uh, in a bigger way. But so they they talk about you know bringing jobs back. You, it's very hard to undo. Uh, 100 years or, you know, 50 years, 100 years of, of policy uh, is what I'm uh, proposing here. 
And then we're also coming into the age of automation, uh, Ian, which was also alluded to in Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages. Um, so we have this convergence here uh, in 2017 of some of these trends that have been decades in the making. And I think, and so I want to ask you, Ian, is, is some of this coming to a head right now? And what could we look forward to looking ahead? What are some big trend markers and lines that we should be paying attention to? Well, first of all, I'm glad you, we're thinking along the same lines because I was just about to offer a quote from Between Two Ages because you know, the technotronic agenda um, actually can be traced back, uh, well, it can be traced back further than this, but for the purposes of our discussion, it can be traced back to the early 1930s. And, of course, this is the document known as Technocracy, Inc., which was written by Howard Scott and uh, Marion King Hubbard. And so consequently, I don't believe that Brzezinski was actually um, producing new material when he wrote Between Two Ages. What he was doing, uh, he wrote Between Two Ages in 69. It was published in 70. Um, so it was, what, 30, 37 years on, 38 years on from the publication of Technocracy, Inc. And Technocracy, Inc. is the visualization of a totally controlled society uh you know through technology but of course back then they had the vision but they didn't have the technology and brzezinski picked up on that theme and has been running with that theme ever since and the quote that i want to offer you and, and by the way let's remember that it was this book between two ages the techno the uh, technocratic era sorry technotronic era it was this book that got brzezinski to the attention of the uh, Rockefellers. And basically, he went on the Rockefeller payroll from the early 1970s. And, of course, he founded the Trilateral Commission in 73. And, you know, well, the rest, as they say, is history. But this is a very, very significant and important quote from this book. He says, The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite, unrestrained by traditional values. Huh. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about that citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. So two things here. First of all, of course, this absolutely dovetails with the discussion that you were having with Andy Thomas on the recent Investigatory Powers Act, which is effectively that paragraph embodied in a parliamentary act. Uh, and, of course, that is, um, what, 40, 46 years later. But the point, you, I know you were going to say something on it, but that sentence there, such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values. And, and, and those traditional values are things like, uh, you know, uh, privacy, uh, bill of rights, um, the sovereignty of the individual, etc. Is that is that what you're getting at? Exactly. I mean, traditional values means basically we have no social conscience whatsoever. Humanity is is a pure commodity, and will be used, abused, and disposed of at whim. Hmm. That, that's basically what Brzezinski's saying in this book. And um, we have Technocracy, Inc., and I believe Technocracy, Inc. was written in uh, 30, uh, 32, or published in 32, I think. Um, and I believe that uh, George Orwell, Eric Blair, I believe that when he wrote 1984, he was actually trying to give us a heads up about the Technocracy, Inc. agenda. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is, this is exactly what was described. Brzezinski expands upon it in uh, Between Two Ages, the technotronic era. Now, bear in mind that Brzezinski, just a few years ago, also made a couple of very, very important observations. Because he said, and I believe this was 2011. I, I do stand corrected if, I, if I'm wrong. But he made an observation. He said that the biggest obstacle to establishing the one world government is the rapid political and spiritual awakening of the masses. Yeah, he did I say that. that is, I think what he said was massive 
You know, I, and this is why they are accelerating the agenda, because they know that something has been unleashed. It's not going to affect everybody. You know, it doesn't need to affect everybody. I mean, people say, oh, you know, we're 90% of the population will never see this. Maybe that's true. But it doesn't need 90% of the population to bring about massive change. I mean, it's actually estimated only 3% of the population of the southern states actually took up arms against the uh, um, federal government in the Civil War. And, and only 8% of the population of the southern states actually wanted independence from the federal government. So it doesn't actually need a, a big number to you know, in, start the process of trying to bring about change. And, and what the establishment are trying to do is they don't know where that critical mass is. They don't know where that hundredth monkey is, but they're desperately trying to ensure that we don't actually reach that point because they know that once we get to critical mass, their position will be completely untenable. And I believe that it was um, George uh, Bush Sr. who was caught in an unguarded moment uh, of saying back in 91, if the, people, if the people knew, I'm paraphrasing here, but if the people knew what we had done, then they would lynch us in the streets and hang us from the lamppost tomorrow. And, uh-huh. and the danger is, here, here we are, uh, what is it, um, <clears throat> 25 years after he made that observation, and, and that prospect, I think, is becoming uh, more possible every single day. You know, more, you know, 10 years ago, if you'd have mentioned fractional reserve banking, you'd have seen people's eyes glaze over. Now a, a very, very significant percentage of the population, I mean, may not understand the, the full mechanics, but has at least got a basic idea that it's a financial fraud based on uh, debt. You know, and um, the, once people start to understand the basic principle of debt control, then that, again, becomes a portal, and they start their further research, their further discussions, and then they start to see the, the bigger picture. And, and this is, you know, what I think it, it, we're going to see in 2017. We're going to see the establishment attempting to increase, uh, to, to introduce more and more draconian legislation but the more draconian the legislation the more it's actually going to trigger people's curiosity as to why that draconian legislation um you know becomes necessary and you can't keep blaming it on the you know the the rogue uh terrorists i mean more and more people are starting to realize that al-qaeda and isis and al-nusra and any other name that you want to conjure up that these are effectively the constructs of the u.s the uk and israel you know People see this, and, and this is something that the establishment is so desperate, so desperate to put a lid on, it's going to keep making mistakes, and it's actually just going to dig the hole for itself deeper and deeper. And what I do know, um, you know is that there are an increasing number of people in the establishment, sometimes in, you know, obviously in relatively lowly positions, but instead of being the enablers and the facilitators, of um, a, an aggressive agenda that has no social conscience, they're actually doing whatever they can within their small way to undermine that. And eventually, you know, it's going to reach the uh, higher echelons and uh, people are going to say, you know what? No, we're just not going to do it. Yeah, and, and Julian Assange alluded to, to, to this a little bit when he said, you know, the, you, you should have no expectations of uh, any secure systems. Uh, in the in, in going into the now in the 21st century, so everything is hackable. Everything is is compromised potentially, and so th- th- this is the irony of the uh, the digital revolution. Uh, and so they might have the resources to have firewalls and security encryption, but but also the uh, other side has the ability to get that information. I think with with uh, the DNC leaks and the Podesta emails in the U.S., this is exactly what happened. People got a look in. They got a little peek into that world, Ian, of collusion between the media and the political establishment, and they're horrified by it. 
and they literally did want to lynch them in the streets, you know. So th- yeah. I think that it's just going to become more and more of a that's going to become more and more of a reality going forward as well. Uh, more stuff is going to be exposed. They can't redact every document, and they you know they're extending the freedom of information uh, ceiling for like up to seventy, a hundred years extensions on a lot of important events in history uh, because they just, people just they c- couldn't afford really for any of this to ever come out because Bush was right Ian they would be horrified and they would they will lynch them in the streets uh, if they find out what they've really done uh, and so this is why they're going hell for leather uh, to continue to try to cover it up you know I'll, I'll just leave you at this point Ian and give you the final word but Aleppo the reason they were so desperate to put a no-fly zone over Aleppo is because they didn't want people to get in and actually find the chemical weapons that the rebels have been using, the torture uh, in the basements, the the dungeons, the gas canister bombs, the the the, the Al Nusra front uh, flags, uh, everything, all the fraud, everything that's been covered up for the last five years by the Western media. People can go in now and they're getting the real facts on the ground. That's what they didn't want people to get access to. This is why they created such a facade uh, with regards to the media coverage of Aleppo, calling it a genocide and blah, blah, blah. Because they didn't want people, real people to go in and, and, and take a look at what has been going on there with the backing of the West. Uh, with terrorists occupying eastern Aleppo for the last four years. It's really it's because of the facts on the ground. It's really because of the information, Ian, that they didn't want people uh, to see. They didn't want that information to see the light of day. It's happening now, and, and they, people are will be horrified eventually when the, when the mainstream media is forced to admit and report on everything that they've been fraudulently co- covering up uh, for the last four years. So they've been willing to kill people. They've been willing to see people, innocent people, die in order to cover those secrets, um, and that is the, uh, the the real epiphany of, uh, of of a situation like that. But um, I just want to get your final words. We're going to wrap up this segment, Ian. But uh, uh, looking back, looking forward, um, anything else you'd like to leave us with uh, for 2017? Yeah, listen, I, I think that I've got to make an observation. I mean, the work that you guys, 21st Century Wire, have done covering the Aleppo situation and, of course, the absolutely iconic work of uh, Vanessa Beely. And, you know, I, I think that uh, one thing that we're seeing as well is more and more people losing their fear because this is the, the other thing that the establishment has relied on, the, you know, the ruling parasites. I refuse to use the, the E word. You know, the ruling parasites relied on everybody either being controlled through debt and the fear of what would happen if they don't repay that debt or just generic fear. You know, fear of what might happen to them if they, uh, you know, break away from the uh, official narrative. And yes, of course, there's a risk. But every time, every time they take someone out, then it actually creates probably 10,000 or 100,000 more people who go, well, hang on a second, you know, what's going on here? It's like the number of, um, of uh, alternative cancer treatment um, uh, health professionals that have met with remarkably mysterious demises over the last uh, uh, couple of years as the pharmaceutical industry desperately tries to hang on to, you know, chemo being the only orthodox way of, of treating cancer because it's a, it's a revenue stream. So I think, you know, with the combination of uh, an increase in the alternative media, an increase in the number of people who are now prepared to say, you know what, enough's enough. And, and if I don't start speaking out about it, then, you know, I'm not going to be able to, uh, to live with myself because I'm actually going to be a, a fraud myself. So I must speak my truth and I must speak my truth to power. And, you know, this is what's so exciting about the AV events. And I know you're coming over to the uh, UK uh, in uh, May to participate in, in AV8. And, you know, the people that we bring together at the Alternative View conferences, you know, it's it's three days of like-minded people. Um, they may they definitely won't agree on everything, but you know, debate is uh, is a wonderful thing. That's how we enhance our our learning. Uh, but three days, of people in the same beautiful venue, 
listening to extremely well-informed and inspirational speakers and then having the opportunity to sit down with those speakers and uh, speak offline, you know, in, in a very comfortable environment. This, these are it's all contributing to build, creating the pebbles that are then dropped in the pond and the ripples. Well, we have no idea how far those ripples reach. And, you know, all we know is that, you know, we're dropping the pebbles. And, and you know, what I think we're going to see over the next year is more panic from the establishment. We're going to see more false flags. The more false flags we see, the more people that are going to see through them. We're going to see an increasing move towards um, pushing the cashless society with the removal of high domination notes as they try and force people into, um, you know, online or direct uh, bank transactions. And all of which, is actually going to contribute to getting more and more people to asking the question, more and more people experiencing the negatives of such systems as they're uh, the victims of fraud or, uh, you know, just malpractice of, of some form. So I think that, you know, this is not going to be um, a year in which uh, humanity can sit back by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think it's going to be a seminal year in contributing to bringing about the changes that we all know we need to see. And obviously, not everybody is going to be in a position where they can make a direct contribution to that because they're going to have family responsibilities and, you know, they will be on the treadmill. But as people get to a position in, or point in their life where they have a degree of freedom, whether that's financial freedom or time freedom or whatever, then I think we're going to see those people come into the game and, you know, make whatever contribution it is they can. And I think that 2020, I'm going to look forward a few years. It's not a long way, but I think by 2020, we are going to be in a very, very different political paradigm than we are right now. And I'm going to put my neck out and say that it will be a positive paradigm. We might have to go through some trauma in the interim, but I think by 2020, we're going to be in pretty damn good shape. Mm. Uh, that's overwhelmingly the sense I'm getting uh, talking to a number of other people as well and also just reading the tea leaves. Uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Ian, on that. I do, I do think there's there's a tectonic shift going very silently and quietly. But, yes, it's, it's going through a storm at the same time. Uh, but there's a degree of realism that I think a lot of people have adopted, which I find very encouraging. Uh, and, and so maybe not looking for the magic silver bullet, maybe that they were once expecting. Um, I think that went out the door with Obama's hope and change. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, coming, coming to a place of reality um, and, and, and making their sort of value judgments that way. And I think that's a good thing. But um, we really appreciate your dedication and your work. You're out there in the fight, Ian. Uh, as we speak to you now, you are in the fight uh, right now, uh, standing up and, and supporting uh, the residents there up in York, North Yorkshire and uh, fighting against the uh, the drill bits, as it were, and uh, the uh, the fracking of Britain. So we, we salute you, Ian, uh, in this new year, and we wish you all the very best uh, in your work and your efforts. And uh, we look forward also to seeing you uh, at your great event uh, this coming uh, spring uh, in the UK, the Alternative View, AV8. Uh, and where can people get tickets for this, Ian? Okay, we're to go to the website, alternativeview.co.uk, or, or my own website, ianrcrane.com, I-A-N-R-C-R-A-N-E, ianrcrane.com. Okay, we got a link to the Alternative View on our site right now, on the show page right now, so you can just click on that. That'll take you to there, and you can learn more about Ian, too. He's got his bio, bio up there, and we've also got links to his show, Humanity versus Insanity. Ian R. Crane, thank you so much, and take care, and we wish you a happy 2017. Thanks, Patrick, and to you, and uh, you know, may, may we make good progress on behalf of humanity. Absolutely. When we are, and we are, we're going to take a short commercial break and uh, we're going to connect with our next guest and also some friends uh, from uh, the alternate current radio network crew uh, in the next segment. We'll be right back after these messages. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're here at the 2017 Event Horizon. We'll be right back after these messages. Good news, boppers. The big alert has been called off. 
It turns out that the early reports were wrong, all wrong. Now for that group out there that had such a hard time getting home, sorry about that. I guess the only thing we can do is play you a song. Thank <laughs> you.